This episode is sponsored by Business Declares. A few weeks ago, we had a number of business leaders that queued for climate and nature across the Millennium Bridge in London. This is a pivotal moment in business because as businesses across the UK, we stand for climate and nature. We stand for businesses and the fact that business is at the heart of decisions. And we know that as businesses, we really need to have the environment and sustainability at the heart of any decisions made by our politicians. Don't listen to the current politicians and what they say. It's not true. We as businesses really do care. And we also know it's the most cost-effective and pragmatic approach to future proofing the UK and our business community. If you want to find out more, go to businessdeclares.com. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to Sustainability Solved. Today, we're going to do things a little differently. COP28 is only weeks away, and on this episode of the podcast, we've invited guests with really strong opinions to join us and to share their views on this, one of the highest profile events in the sustainability calendar. I think this is the COP where it needs to break down in order to be rebuilt. So I almost want to see this COP fail utterly. You'll hear more from those guests in a moment. But first, I'd like to introduce myself. I'm Will Richardson, the founder and CEO of the Green Element Group, incorporating green element, compare your footprint, and of course, sustainability solved. And today, I'm joined by a new co-host, a voice you may well recognise as the host of Homes by the Sea and Building the Dream. Charlie Luxton is an architectural designer and TV presenter with a long-held interest in sustainability and the environment. And I'm hoping I might be able to persuade him to become a regular fixture on the podcast. Welcome, Charlie. Thanks, Will. Nice to be here. Now, Charlie, can I start by asking you, what do you know about COP? Um, well, I'm not, look, I'm not totally sure. It's a bit vague to me. I do recall the Rio Summit in 1992 I think I think I was 18 about then and I remember it being a big deal and then it sort of went a bit quiet and then this thing called COP started to happen I know that the Paris 2015 I think was COP I think and I know that Glasgow last year was COP 27 I'm reaching here and I think what I do know is that next year is COP 28 Am I got this all wrong? Have I got this all wrong? Oh God, I think I've got this all wrong. <laughs> no, you haven't got it wrong. Egypt was Egypt was twenty seven, and the bit I remember the most is that Agenda twenty one because I learned about it at university, and I think it was quite a big thing at university. So that was the Rio one, wasn't it? That was that was the big first international get together. No, that came yeah, that came after Rio. It's very confusing. I'm confused. I think we're all confused. Hopefully someone's going to tell us what on earth is going on and why the next one is so important because that one is in the UAE, isn't it? That's COP28 and that is the thing that's sort of setting the 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 world of sustainability a bit on its head because all the sustainability people are going to effectively a petro state to talk about climate change, which is a bit conflicting. And hopefully, Will, at the end of this podcast, you and I are going to know a little bit more. <laughs> Let's introduce our guests. We've got Georgia Elliott-Smith, who is the founder and managing director of sustainability consultancy 
Element 4. She's also an engineer and activist. Welcome, Georgia. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Will. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you for coming along. And hopefully you're going to clear the fog on the COP process. That's what we're hoping for. I'll do my best. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got Emma Littlewood, and she's the Creative Director of Strategy at Compare Your Footprint. Welcome, Emma. Welcome to you too, Charlie. Lovely to meet you. So first of all, can I ask who here has actually been to a COP and, and what does COP stand for and what's it like? Georgia. <laughs> so I've been to a COP. I was at COP26. COP stands for Conference of Parties. And what that means is it is a conference for all of those parties, the nations that have signed up to the United Nations Convention on Climate Change, or Framework Convention on Climate Change, so UNFCCC. Ooh, what does UNFCCC stand for? Now, Emma and I were talking about this, and apparently she was listening to a programme, and they were these genius, the genius programme, and they asked these apparent geniuses what it stood for, and they didn't have a clue what it stood for. <laughs> They didn't know. I think most people don't know, even people in sustainability. Yeah. So UNFCCC stands for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. OK, and so that is a convention. It is um, it's been signed up to by the member nations of the United Nations. And those are the parties to the conference. And so when we say COP, what we're talking about is a gathering of all of those nations, representatives from the nations of those signatories to this framework, Convention on Climate Change. Does that make a bit more sense? And has every nation on earth or every nation within the UN signed up to this? Yeah. All of the members of the United Nations have, yes. And you'll have to forgive me because I don't know how many that is, but it's a lot. <laughs> it's almost all of them. It's 197, Georgia, I think. They always round it up to 200, but I think it's actually 197. Or 198, if you include the EU. There we go. I haven't actually been to a COP. Excellent. So there we go. So it's a lot. <laughs> how many countries are there in the world? Does anyone know? More than 200. And I think it's how you define a country. It gets a bit hazy. <laughs> I'm just wondering what percentage, what percentage of countries have signed up and what percentages of haven't. It sounds like it's the majority of the world has signed up to COP. Yeah, the vast majority. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, again, I, I'm afraid that's a gap in no. knowledge. I don't know which countries <laughs> haven't signed it, but none of the major yeah. nations. I mean, you know, we've got all of the biggies. We've got the Indians and Chinas, the USA yeah. and so on. Uh, but we've also got many, many small nations, you know, small island states like Papua New Guinea and, you know, very small African countries. And um, so, yes, it's it's a very, very broad range of the global emitters. That's right. And also the EU only counts as one member. So, for example, you can't really kind of look at it as in terms of countries versus countries in the world, because some some countries get together and they join as one member, for example, the EU. Gotcha. OK. Okay, that makes sense. But Charlie, you're quite right about the Rio summit in 1992 was where there was the signing of the original treaty that Georgia was referring to, the UNFCCC. And after that, there was, uh, you know, in 97, we had the Kyoto Protocol. And then following on from that later on, of course, the iconic Paris Agreement in 2015. 
so that's the kind of th those are the big milestones that have been reached through that process is that is that a fair sort of assessment there's there are a number of different terms that we use and we talk about kyoto but you know, in, in environmental circles, we talk about Kyoto, we talk about things like Montreal Protocol, and we talk about these things. And these are basically just big conferences where United Nations countries get together and form agreements. And, and there are these key milestones. And Paris was the biggest, you know, most recent one, which was in 2015. And the Paris Agreement now forms the basis of what we talk about at these COP conferences. The Paris Agreement of 2015 was the one where, you know, the world was celebrating, really. There was a, a big fanfare that we had come to an agreement that we would all endeavour to keep the global temperature increase below 1.5 degrees centigrade. And that's a global average warming temperature. The other figure that sometimes people talk about is 2 degrees centigrade. So we have these two kind of parallel conversations which uh, and and uh, parts of the science which talk about 1.5 degrees which is trying to keep the the global average below that and well below two degrees centigrade so we've sort of got these sort of best option and less good option but we talk about 1.5 and two degrees kind of simultaneously in climate science so tell me about the the, the kind of the process of actually the event i mean who organizes it H how many people come who are the people that are at this event and what is the process by which these agreements good bad enacted or not enacted are, are kind of come to because it does sound like a quite an extraordinary event it is it's astonishing when you go to these cops it is an absolute circus is what it is in my mind. But the circus is really what we call the green zone. It's what goes on on the periphery of the actual conference. So the, the actual COP conference at its heart is a meeting of civil servants from and negotiators from each of the signatory countries. And that's what a, a at the conferences we call the blue zone and the blue zone is sort of the inner ring and that's where these nation you know national representatives get together and they have their meetings and they make their presentations and that's where the true negotiations go on and so as a as a participant to cop i was um what was known as an observer an international observer. So I had access to both the green and the blue zone. The green zone, the green zone like I say, that's kind of the outer ring. And that's where uh, businesses go. That's where members of the public go. That's where a lot of the talks and the, the sort of um, what I found quite exasperating, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, um, goes on in that green zone. And that, like I say, that's the sort of circuses in town. The, the blue zone bit that's really, really boring. It's really boring. It's where you go and it's essentially a business meeting and they have an agenda and they have this very, very detailed agenda that they have to work through through each day of the two weeks of a COP conference. And on that agenda is all the boring business of um, agreeing the language that goes into the documentation, you know, of countries discussing their um, targets, but not in an exciting way that's really dynamic, in a way that just makes you want to fall asleep and curl up and go, oh my God, this thing is just so glacially slow. It's unbelievable. So there's, there's a kind of layers of activity at COP. 
And when we talk about a COP conference, we do have to be careful about what we're talking about. Are we talking about the big circus trade show that goes on? Or are we talking about the national negotiating teams that are getting together within this inner ring, doing the actual business of the conference, which is international agreements about how we are going to achieve reduced carbon emissions. And that is, like I say, each country has a negotiating team and that will be made up of prominent people, prominent negotiators. Uh, They could be cabinet ministers. They often are cabinet ministers from the UK, leading civil servants. So department heads from places like DEFRA and DESNES and these different departments. And then also teams of civil servants whose job it is, is to work out policy in the country and align our policy with our commitments at at, um, the conference. And how how far in advance is the schedule of the issues that they're going to tackle set out? I mean, it doesn't sound like that sort of busked on the spot and worked out as they're going through. Is this, I mean, and who is setting that framework and that agenda? Is that something that's agreed say at COP27 to be taken forward at, at COP28 or is or is it is it more sort of bureaucratic or is it is it more freeform? How, how does that work? What happens is there's a process that yes initially will be commenced at the previous COP but you have a committee of people who are all appointed and you have officials, heads of state and industry leaders through to sort of civil society representatives and these all get together and you have a COP28 team And so for this COP, there's a team of people who are under the auspices of the United Nations, which is the host ultimately of all of this, through the framework of the United Nations Framework Convention on uh, Climate Change. And they slowly develop what the agenda is going to be, but all of the members, all of what they call the, the conference of the parties, so it's all of the parties, they contribute to that process. And at the moment, they're really ramping up a lot of the PR around it and a lot of the fighting over the agenda. And obviously this year, there's been a departure from the usual way that COP is hosted because the president is actually somebody from the business world. And usually it's someone who is solely either somebody from a member state or a a party state but they're not usually having crossover links with an industry. And very pertinently and significantly this year, that industry happens, or perhaps it's not so much happens, to be one of the biggest oil and gas companies in the world. Which is a horror show, clearly. Which is a horror show. Right, Okay. I think we've finally got to the nub of the issue here, haven't we? (laughs) Yeah, we've finally got to the nub. I mean, the primary cause of the climate crisis is fossil fuels, and they benefit from an eye-watering $13 million a minute of subsidies. So throughout 2022, $13 million a minute was subsidising oil and gas, and that is according to something called the IMF, which is the International Monetary Fund. That's about double what is spent on education globally. So, I mean, from my point of view, this is a a unique PR opportunity for the UAE National Oil Company, which is called Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, or ADNOC, because, for example, there's just been a report out recently that there are two senior executives from ADNOC who are working with the core COP28 team right now as the as the country is wrapping up its ramping up the PR campaign ahead of the summit 
Um, and there are multiple reports raising concerns about the crossover, therefore, that there are actually members within the mm. COP28 team who are also high professionals within the oil company known as Adnoc. So there's a sort of blurring of the lines here, which is really of some concern. So, but Emma, I can see, obviously, that really bothers you. Will, you've got a slightly different take on this, haven't you? Well, it's not I've got a different take. I do totally agree with Emma. And I'm just throwing it out there. The northern countries have all been in the energy-making world for a very long time. And we're quite advanced with energy. We had the colonial period beforehand where we actually made a huge amount of money out of the majority of the southern countries. We had that money. We were then able to put together industry. We were then able to explore for oil and gas. And now we've got quite advanced renewable energy techniques. And I just wonder if there's an air of we are telling the global south to do it and that we can't have anything to do with oil and gas because we are advanced and you know within the energy sector i may be completely wrong but i do think we have to tread very carefully with regards to telling the global south what it is they can and cannot do i agree will but i think that's a very different issue I totally agree about social justice. It's a huge part of my work. It's a huge, huge part. And I think one of the biggest opportunities that we have missed as environmentalists is the opportunity to bring people along with us. I think not even just in the global south. I think right here, we are currently struggling with populism. You know, this agenda about net zero, the whole just complete horror show of Sunak and these um, massive, you know... um, U-turns. Backpedalling, <laughs> U-turns, exactly. I, sorry, I'm trying not to swear. <laughs> um, what we have done is we have gone at pace, thinking that everybody is on the same page and we've tried to drag you know, a, a green revolution through and in the past have not really paid attention to that social justice issue. And I think you know, a lot of the work that I do with She Changes Climate, um, a lot of my work, you know, I'm a legal activist, I'm all about justice, and I think that that is a huge thing. But I do think that that is separate from the issue of fossil fuels, because I think the issue of the growth of fossil fuels, it is it is a fact. You know, the International Energy Agency has said, you know, several years ago said, if we are to achieve our climate goals, you know, the Paris Agreement and the 1.5 degrees centigrade or even the well below two degrees centigrade target, there must be no new fossil fuels And that is simply not happening. You know, fossil fuels are continuing to increase. You know, as Emma's talked about subsidies, actually in 2021 slash 22, global fossil fuel subsidies doubled and hit an all-time peak of a trillion US dollars. We are increasing fossil fuel production at pace. Uh, Just out of interest, how does that relate to the subsidies on on sustainable energy? Because my understanding is that at the moment in, in the South, PV is probably the cheapest way of generating, you know, a megawatt of electricity. So how, how is that reality not playing out? Because of government subsidies. I mean, if we just talk about the UK, for example, the UK government, since the Paris Agreement, has given £20 billion more to fossil fuels than it has to renewable energies. So both receive a level of subsidy, but fossil fuels are significantly more funded by government. So out of our pocket than they are renewables. 
And I think there's a, a very, very sinister. Why are we subsidizing fossil fuel companies when they're so profitable? Yeah, good question. I would put it down to crony capitalism. A lot of the people who make decisions are also the people who have huge investments in oil and gas, sometimes direct, as in perhaps Rishi Sunak's family firm, Infosys, who's just made huge investments in BP, just prior to the announcement of maxing out on North Sea oil and gas. And we've just heard about the... Half a billion pounds they've made. Yeah. Half a billion pounds they made out of Rishi Sunak's announcement that 100 million illegal? gas licences would be. No. It should be. It's not. <laughs> it should be. Because that's inside the trading. I'm sure there's paper walls. I'm sure... Before, before we get the legal team here, sure it is all legal. Whether it is right is another question. And whether the legal system yeah. is correct to deal with it is another question. But I'm sure it's legal. One of the shocking things that I have discovered as I've started to become more political and I'm now working with a political party called True and Fair, one of the key mandates there is to improve standards in, in public life because actually there is a shocking absence of rules for our policymakers. Many of them act as consultants while they're sitting MPs. Many of them have second jobs in companies that's, that do uh, profit from the sorts of decisions that get made. You know, there is um, the register of lobbyists is completely ineffectual because there's all kinds of ways around it and loopholes. And so, you know, we find these traditional industries which are enormously powerful, you know, they make billions of profit. And a lot of that does get funneled into pet projects of our MPs and our civil servants and policymakers. And there's enormous corruption that goes on, you know. And so there's this is a massive problem that we need to tackle. Um, and, and a very good question, Charlie. Why do they still receive subsidies when they make billions of pounds in clear profit? Are we saying that the problems that we're now discussing on a national level are pretty much the same problems that are, are kind of shifting the way that COP's operating, Emma? The infiltration of oil and gas lobbyists, investors, people who actually run the companies into the COP process is enormous. In recent years, oil companies have completely rolled black on their climate pledges and they continuously have lobbied against climate regulations while reaping absolutely eye-watering record profits and paying vast dividends to their shareholders and we've seen what that's done to the world and this is where climate and social justice meet at a very not sweet spot but a sour spot because the irony is that those who contributed least to climate breakdown are suffering the impacts the most intensely and acutely and chronically. And that links into what, what Will was saying um, and what Georgia was saying about what we now call Global South countries. We have to be careful with that phrase because the Global South is not a homogenous being, it's a heterogeneous being. The UK pulled out of the United Arab Emirates where COP28 is to be held in November in 1971. Oil was found there in the 50s. It is extremely rich, wealthy company, uh, country. Now, the problem here is that we've wanted to have conversations at COP about oil and gas, fossil fuel companies, coming to the table and speaking with them. And Christiana Figueres, who was the UN chief for many years, for many, many years, she advocated for oil companies that they should be involved in the policy making talks. And she had hoped that that would work. She has now 
changed her position on that completely. She says, I was wrong. She naively thought fossil fuel firms could change. She says, they cannot. They are there only to obstruct and to try to prevent the progress of reducing and completely eliminating any new exploration for new oil and gas. No one is saying that we can switch off oil and gas today, tomorrow. But what is happening is that these subsidies are going into exploration for new oil and gas. They're not going into where they should be going to, which you quite rightly talked about, Charlie, which is subsidies into renewables. So, Emma, you don't see a role for the big energy companies. And if we take oil and gas out of it, that's what they would argue they are. And I think you're saying, no, they're not. They're oil and gas companies. They're not energy companies. But, Georgia, do you see a role for the energy companies, let's say, having a seat at this table? And and I'm going to add another question to that is, okay, so let's say they are at the table. What are the control mechanisms to try and ensure that they don't subvert the processes that we've seen Exxon doing in, in America around the climate change conversation? And they've now been called out on that. And uh, I think there's some lawsuits being put together by certain states against the big oil and gas companies. How is COP going to stop that, that subversion? I think there's a lot of muddling in people's minds about what COP is. I think no energy company, no vested interest, whether positive or negative, deserves a seat at the table. I don't believe any corporate body at all should be represented at COP. What COP is, is a group of policymakers coming together to talk about how we are going to achieve our global ambitions as countries, as policymakers. Now, within that, it is up to each country's you know, we will decide on what our national contributions are to the problem of climate change. We will agree what our goals are. And then we'll go away. And nationally, in each country, we then need to decide what policy mechanisms need to be created to stimulate renewables and to reduce energy consumption, which I mean, let's not forget, this isn't just about oil and gas and renewables, it's about reducing our energy consumption. But it's about policy making. It is not the place of any body corporate to be at the table at COP. And I think that's where the waters have been muddied is why are these people there? Why are they there? They're only there because they have a financial vested interest. And that is not appropriate when we're talking about policymaking, we're talking about huge global problems like climate change, which are beyond the body corporate. The conversation should be just between countries about what are our obligations here? What are our responsibilities? What do we have to do? Where are we going? Then we go back to our countries and we work out what is our national capability? Do we have the ability to come off fossil fuels? If not, why not? If we don't have the right investment in renewables, how are we going to stimulate that? And then, you know, that's the the place where you then start talking to industry to say, how are we going to deliver on the commitments that we've made internationally to reduce climate change? That makes complete sense. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we can see that role in industry and government merging in the UK, and it has done around the world. And actually, that's probably what's happened with COP as well, because it's naturally... and it makes sense. You want government to be completely separate. It's a neutral place. We've been talking, 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 talking around the world and media and everything. And actually what we haven't been talking about is the crux of it is 
Why are they there? Why is industry there? Why are they there? The only reason they're there is to feather their nests. I think the, the circus around COP is incredibly toxic. It has just become a place to be seen, a massive greenwash show. I've taken out a swear word there. It is just revolting. I mean, actually, when I was there, I was... I, I was fully activist when I was there. I was standing up in all kinds of presentations and conferences, challenging and, you know, confronting corporate CEOs from big listed companies saying that we could fix the climate crisis if we bought more of their stuff. You know, and it's just like, shut up, go away, really take account of these issues and work out how we're going to fix these problems. Stop coming here and treating it like a trade show where you can just say you're super green, you you know, being seen at COP. I mean, it's just, I have a pass for this year's COP and I'm wrestling with myself about whether or not I'm going to go. Unless I am asked to speak in a forum in which I think I can contribute meaningfully, you know, to the meaningful change, I will not go. Because what it has become is a place where everyone is just going to be seen, they're exchanging business cards, everyone's pandering to big corporates, everyone's looking for business, you know, everyone's just talking crap. It's all greenwash. And, you know, and, and really it's distracting from what it is at its core. And I think we should just get rid of that circus. Um, and have an alternative trade show where we talk about, you know, the solutions and the fact that people don't know what COP is. And I mean, I, I really agree with that. Yeah, because we were asked as, as Green Element to go along to COP28 to present climate change education sort of in November in Dubai to sort of some of their youth delegates. And we declined that. We didn't exactly... decline it. We asked for some more information about the organisation behind the education and what their links to COP were, what their attitude to to UAE human rights standards were. But also, I, I really didn't feel that it would be a good place for Green Element to position itself just to be seen at COP delivering education on climate change, having just created two tonnes of carbon per person to fly out to Dubai, it it kind of reminds me of a tutor of mine who was an internationally renowned pollution expert who told me she loved the London congestion charge because it cleared the streets so that she could drive her SUV into the centre of London. And I I just find the, the, the complete kind of paradox of flying out to a conference which has become, to all intents and purposes, a kind of marketplace and a place for people to do deals in side rooms in order to have some kind of standing in the so-called sustainable world. I know that we may be coming over as rather negative about what is able to be agreed, but, but let's not forget, we did have the Montreal Protocol, we did have the Kyoto Protocol, we did have, as George has talked about, the um, well below two and then eventually changed to 1.5 pledges from Paris in 2015. We are hoping that some miracle could happen, which Christiana Frigeris has also said she hopes for, she lives in eternal optimism, that there will be an uncompromised deal to phase out oil and gas, to phase out all fossil fuels. That is the only good thing, apart from obviously firmer commitments in the loss and damage fund 
and actually showing showing some actual dollars to contribute to the loss and damage fund as opposed to rather just pledging that there'll be dollars but those two clear goals for me I think will be something that everybody will be overjoyed if if we could achieve that if there could be some kind of global consensus that oil and gas now has to go I'm very cynical that that could happen let's not mess about with our words here they have lobbied for years and they have spent a lot of investment in denying climate change when that no longer washed they moved into the greenwash so you get shell green go and all this other greenwash going on and now now that that's not working so well they're trying to use what's called the energy crisis and the war in Ukraine as a reason to roll back, which is what our prime minister in the UK has has used as the excuse, energy security. Energy security. I was going to say this new word, energy security, which is the, the latest tactic that the oil and gas sector has um, embraced to give policymakers comfort that they're doing the right thing, you know. This episode of Sustainability Solves is brought to you by Business Declares, a not-for-profit business network of over 100 businesses working together for a sustainable future. I'm really pleased to be able to join forces with Business Declares for this podcast, as they are a cause close to my heart, and I already volunteer to them offering advice, attending group meetings, and helping set up and promote events like the recent Q. I would encourage you to join as a member today so you can get help accelerating your action on net zero and nature targets for your business and grow your network of forward-thinking green business leaders. You can find out more information about upcoming events and how you apply to join at businessdeclares.com. And we get energy security from renewables. Have we effectively sort of poisoned the well, if, if you know what I mean? Because, I mean, from my perspective, I think that, that capitalism has to be a core part of solving climate change. I think there's no two ways around that. We just need to change the rules of capitalism. And surely having big businesses near political events to try and understand how that meshing of policy and capital, the capitalist motor, if you like, ad, you know, can be ad, adapted to, 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 to move us towards, you know, ho- hopefully holding 1.5 or not but so are you saying that, that that shouldn't actually be the role of cop that we need to completely disentangle those two those two um sort of factors and and have them integrate at, a, at another venue yes how would you how would you change it well i what i would i would have very very strict new rules around the intervention and the of of corporates and vested interests in the process the whole corporate influence needs to be utterly routed out of COP. And we need to just have some truth around what's really going on. I mean, at COP26, the fossil fuel lobbyists were the largest delegation, larger than any country's delegation. Um, at COP27, it was 25% higher than at COP26. And so you can see this is just unbelievable, the, the vested interests that are present. That needs to be completely routed out and there needs to be a wall built between policymakers and corporate. I agree with you that that there is a role here, you know, that capitalism, and, and I think 
we're seeing this in the UK right now. I think there are so many companies who are transitioning to net zero. You know, they're doing a lot to decarbonize. They've embraced this, the, the messaging around climate change, and they're doing a lot. But this flip-flopping of government, who's in the pockets of these, these lobbyists, is actually preventing industry from moving as fast as it wants to. You know, we've got this uncertainty. You need certainty in order to raise investment, in order to make a strong direction. While the government's flip-flopping around, you know, there's no way that corporates can move forwards. And so a lot of progressive businesses are just crying out for better regulation, you know, rather than deregulation, which has been historically what industry's been after. I think but the progressive companies are now saying, "Come on, we need a carbon tax. Otherwise, without that, we can't. You know, we can't. Uh, we're failing in our fiduciary duty as directors to protect the financial interests of this company if we decarbonize, because that's hitting our profits. If you put in place a carbon tax, we are then able to justify decarbonization on the basis of improved profits, you know, and, and reduced costs. And so, you know, we're getting this really strong movement now from some progressive corporates to try and push the dial forwards. But what we need, and, and I do think if we th if we look at capitalism, if we look at its roots, you know, with the Adam Smith model of capitalism, what people often don't talk about is the fact that Adam Smith put forward a model of responsible capitalism, where he talked very clearly about capitalism only works for the good of people if you have strong government, if you have strong regulation and you create very strong boundaries within which capitalism operates. And unfortunately, that has failed. What we now have is a crossing over of lines. We have companies interfering in elections. We have companies interfering, you know, with policymakers and putting them in their pockets, paying for all sorts of things that is interfering. And so, this neoliberal fantasy of the market being able to sort itself mm. out doesn't work when you have lobbyists interfering with policy. You know, and I think that, so for me, that's, that's where I've landed. Are you concerned that what we're seeing on a national level is effectively what is happening at COP? That, yes. That, that there is a, a lack of clarity in the directions that are being set out by the panel and the, 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 you know, the, the promises set out by the International Forum and that that is going to slow development. And does that mean, Emma, that, that fundamentally COP is a busted flush? And we need to move on and find a different forum or do we need to try and you know rejuvenate it and, and, and regulate it and change its its rules i think cop has become a victim of its own success i think it was set up hand on heart in good faith wherever there's money involved corruption will follow unfortunately unless as georgia has set out there is very, very strong governance and very strong rulemaking and boundaries. The irony of this and the hypocrisy of this is not lost on people. They might not know all the acronyms and they might not know all of the ways of the, the blue zone and the green zone and all the rest of it. But what they can smell is um, corruption and the powers that be making rules up to suit themselves. The reparation fund really, really needs to be finalised at COP28. Um, there, are, there are the types of lot, losses that, are, that will qualify for payments, who pays in and who receives the funds. There are pledges being made by the president of COP28, Sultan al-Jarab, who is saying, yes, they will increase the amount of money they're paying into these reparation funds and what they call climate finance. 
for me, that's a bit like buying offsets. That company is set to hugely expand their exploration into oil and gas and new oil and gas and increase the volumes. I don't have the numbers of trillions of barrels of oil, but they are massively set to increase. It's 25%. It's 25%. In, in total, it's 25%. They're, they are planning a 25% increase wow. in output. Right. Of oil. And at the yeah. same time, what they're doing is saying, oh, we're giving all this money for climate finance and reparation, like a kind of offset. Yeah, exactly. I think if I can just come back on that, that COP, I do believe that COP is the right vehicle to solve this problem. I do believe it for all its faults. I just think it has gone severely off track and I think it is time now. And I think that this COP28 is just inexcusably corrupt and has got to its lowest point in terms of interference with vested interests. And I think that this ought to now be the the sort of springboard from which we have a very serious conversation about the future of COP and about what is COP for, who is it appropriate to put in charge of this process. I think the rules need to be tightened up and I think we just need a step change in the way in which it's operated. But I do think COP is the solution. It just needs much, much better governance. It'd be good to have the media more behind what it is that you're saying with a with an understanding of what it is that you're both saying we actually need the media to be talking about it and educating all of us on this subject yeah for change to happen absolutely but i mean there you have as well a lot of vested interests you know big media is is a real problem and and it's not just oil and gas you know that we're talking about here for example the meat industry the brazilian meat industry is enormously powerful and they directly altered the wording their lobbyists changed the wording of the paris agreement in you know there was a um, the resolution wording that came out talked about reducing meat consumption now that wording was altered yeah. to say that we ought to move to a more plant-based diet but they took the word meat out of it because the lobbyists were up in arms about it. Now, that you know, this, this, so it's it's a lot of vested, exactly. There's a, so this is why I say that I do think COP is the right forum, but I think that the rules of engagement must change. I would say the United Nations is really the only body that is, is able to bring all of these parties together. There are people who have been the United Nations governor and, and, and still to this day, who have worked extremely hard to try and make these processes of stopping climate breakdown, reducing the impacts of the climate emergency on those who are suffering most and who will suffer most, and working out what the world really can do about this. And they have become extremely disheartened um, and extremely... I guess, cynical eventually. Antonio Guterres has said it's not global warming, it's global boiling. And that unless out of this conference comes an absolute definitive commitment to phasing out oil and gas, and I mean, Georgia mentioned meat, agriculture and mostly meat agriculture, but agriculture and fossil fuels received between them 13 trillion subsidies in 2022 a lot of those subsidies are going into um, areas which 
if we are being really honest, need to be rolled back rather than reinforced. And um, therefore, what we need to be able to do is have leaders around the world, and there are such leaders who are supported, who aren't pointing the finger at each other. Um, UK government officials love to point the finger at China and say, China has so much more um, emissions, produces so much more emissions than the UK. What's the point in us worrying about a bit of North Sea oil and gas? China has millions more people than us. It's a per person mm-hmm. thing. And also China produces most of our stuff. You know, this is the reason that a lot of China's emissions are created in the first place is because they're producing all of the steel that we use in our construction. They're producing all of the furniture that we're putting in our homes and offices. They're producing all the most of the clothes and fast moving <laughs> consumer goods. And, <laughs> yeah. And also they are a massive part of the Green Revolution. And, you know, the, and the thing about it as well is that when you look at climate action, Yes, they are the planet's biggest emitters, but they are also reducing their emissions faster than any yeah. other country. On they were Earth. the first country in the world to put, I believe, 10% of all their energy produced into renewables. And they put that in place about 15 years ago. You know, they were very forward with and aggressive with that. OK, but how, how do we get the change? How do we get the change? Have you heard of the People's Cop? Basically, if you put together people in a sort of civil assembly and allow them to be the decision makers and you have groups of people you have ngos you have citizens you have people who represent underrepresented minority groups and there isn't any money on the table there is this is not about deal making this is about how you come together to solve a problem and i think if you can do that so there's something called the environmental justice organization and they have got together a kind of alternative cop. Now, I'm not saying that that could become a powerful decision maker at this point, but it's a way that we bring together people from within society, from the grassroots up, and they come together in an organised way, a bit like, you know, Ireland has these citizens' assemblies that they make all these decisions by referendum. What we need is to have citizens' assemblies and we need to have an alternative cop that is actually about looking at the real problems. This is not something you can do alone. I always say to people, business can't solve this. Business is doing everything it can in the UK, but government is not backing that. We can't do this alone, but what we need to have is citizens, sort of like grassroots level people coming together to understand these issues and start to feel empowered to be a part of the process. So they're not in the green zone and they're not in the Greta Thunberg zone, which is outside the green zone, which is where I would be, you know, campaigning against all sorts of things to do with human rights and to do with climate change and climate justice. But what we need is for them to be at the centre of the decision making instead of on the outskirts. That is how I see it going forward, if that were possible. Georgia, what are your thoughts? How do we change this thing? How do we turn this this this, this oil tanker, pardon the analogy, around? Um, I firmly believe it's about narrative and it's about storytelling because what we've what we have seen is that a move that is blatantly pro-human, which is about saving lives and making 
everybody better off and making everybody's lives better. That messaging has been hijacked by vested interests. You know, we've seen the ExxonMobil and Shell and all of the cynical moves by the fossil fuel industry to change the narrative around uh, climate change. You know, we've we've allowed that narrative to take hold now that actually environmentalism and climate care is about having less and being worse off and suffering and that's not what it's about it's about beauty and life and nature and abundance and joy and community you know and I think that hasn't come through that has not been the narrative that we've been telling I mean clean air how could you be against clean air it's just nonsense that somehow this narrative has become politicized and has been about you know it's them against you it's about our lives our children our health you know it's about Really, these things, I find it very strange that this narrative has gone down this particular route. And I think that we as environmentalists have also been negligent in that because I think a lot of the activism has been about less. You must consume less. You must fly less. You must worry more. You must be anxious about this. You must be fearful about it. And I think we need. it's time now, you know, and I'm an activist. I'm part of this. But I think we've got to a point now where we need to evolve. We need to take a step forwards and we need to own this narrative. And I think what made me so disgusted about the Sunak speech about the rolling back of these environmental regulations and the net zero targets, what made me so disgusted about it was its cowardice. Because I think I compared it, you know, in a LinkedIn post to a speech that Churchill made when we were, you know, looking for the nation to really get behind our efforts going to war in Europe. And it it was about, it's about positioning. It's about saying, look, we have to come together. We have to step up. We have to have courage and vision. We need strong leadership. We need people who are going to own this narrative and say, look, it's not ideal. We've got ourselves into a bit of a pickle, but together we're going to get out of it. And together we're going to create a bright and beautiful future for our children and our grandchildren and the species on earth. And we're going to reverse all this damage that we've created. We didn't know what we were doing, but now we know better. We will do better. And here's the benefits, you know, here's the skills, here's the innovation, here's the efficiency, here's the, you know, exportable intellectual property, here's the brilliant stuff that's ahead of us if we can solve these problems together. And I think, you know, that messaging about a meat tax and the seven recycling bins and all that stuff. I mean, would Churchill have said, you know, oh no, don't worry about the meat tax, you know. No, he would have said, guys, if a meat tax is the only thing we need to suffer in order to get all of these incredible benefits, then come on, let's do it. You know, I mean, I just, I found that that kind of leadership was snivelling and and just really disgusted me when I think there's an opportunity to take this narrative and turn it into something beautiful and aspirational. I think, I think that's perfect. I think that's absolutely perfect. But my question, my question remains, how do we turn the UN and COP around to actually give it the teeth or to give it the focus that it once had and recreate that and 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 just on to add on to that bolt on to that what would you want to see coming out of this year to restore your faith in COP? okay so the first part of that if i may go straight into it is all of these people the united nations our governments are all beholden to the people 
they are all just representatives of the people. So, you know, the UN is just a group of nations. You know, they have no power. They are just a way of convening nations together. But the governments of each nation represent the people. And I think if we have a cultural shift where the people demand better of their leaders, then I think those leaders will take that spirit to the United Nations. So you see Antonio Guterres and Cristiano Figueres with their intense frustration because there's nothing they can really do. All they're doing is convening. And it's these individual nations that need to bring that energy and need to hold each other to account. And so I do think that this is a thing that we start at each at a national level about changing the narrative around climate change because then we will have leaders in place who are actually going to the United Nations saying, come on, we've got to do better, we're going to play our part, instead of trying to roll everything back. So I think that's the start. And I think in terms of, um, sorry, what was your second question? Was what do I want to see? What would you like to see? What outcomes from COP would restore your faith? I think this is the COP where it needs to break down in order to be rebuilt. So I almost want to see this COP fail utterly. I know it sounds really bizarre to say that because I think every sustainability person would say that they want COP to succeed. But I feel like from the ashes of this COP, I think could rise a much better way of proceeding. So I feel like we've got so bad. I thought Coca-Cola's sponsorship of COP27 was <laughs> yes. the best we could get. You know, and I, I was the one that started the petition. I got a half a million signatures on that. You couldn't write it, could you? You really couldn't write it. <laughs> I know, but I wrote to the United Nations with that petition, half a million signatures, you know, to say, what are you going to do about this? I didn't get an answer. I wrote to everybody within the UNFCCC, I wrote to Antonio Guterres, I wrote to various different departments within the UK government, I wrote to policy ministers, everybody. I did not get a single response to half a million people signing that, which is what makes me worry about this process so much, is that it really isn't about the people. So I feel like we've got so low, if we can now recognise it, if we can fail in this COP, we can actually then come together and say, okay, how are we going to do better next time instead of it just, you know, continuing dragging its corpse along every year. Emma, what would you like to see? What would, what would, uh, what would sort of make you feel, restore your faith in COP? There's only one outcome that will make any kind of substantial difference to the climate crisis, which is already very well underway. And that's an immediate end to exploration for new oil and gas and a binding, I would say a binding global deal on phasing out fossil fuels within the next 10 to 30 years. Well, that's it for this episode of Sustainability Solved, the Sustainable Business Podcast. Thank you so much to Georgia Elliott-Smith and Emma Littlewood. For more information on the podcast, our guests and everything we've discussed today, please check the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions, you can get in contact with us at Green Element on social media. And don't forget to follow this podcast in your favourite app. And go on, write us a review.